listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hi, this is Al Martin of Making Data Simple. Thank you for coming back. I hope things are well with you, your families, your business, whatever. I am here with Philip Reiner today. Now, this is the Executive Director of Technology of Global Security, which we'll talk a bit uh, about in a minute. Uh, that's kind of a subtle title for all the background that I see within Philip. Um, he is got it. I'll just go ahead and jump in, Philip. I'm going to see, see if I can do you justice here. A deep experience in government policy and strategy. Uh, he does lectures at Stanford University Center for International Security and Cooperation. But here's a kicker. He's a former senior director of South Asia at the U.S. National Security Council and as a President Obama's lead advisor on India. Man, it keeps going. So former senior advisor of Afghanistan and Pakistan for NSC, worked in the office under the Secretary of Defense for Policy at the Pentagon. Dude, I could keep going, but I'm going to stop because uh, we already know that you're incredibly smart. And uh, I'm impressed. Not only that, one of the reasons that, that brings you here is that, you know, we're going to talk about data and data science, but uh, you have embedded at least to my knowledge, we'll find out here shortly, machine learning, artificial intelligence, information, network security, nuclear security and safety, all within the roles that you, uh, that, that you, that, that we just went through right there. Yeah. So anyway, <laughs> yeah. I've given you probably a terrible lead in. I'd like to hear from you in terms of how you'd summarize your experience yourself. And then we'll go from there if that's okay, Philip. Thank you so much for being here. Absolutely, my pleasure, and thanks thanks for having me. I'm happy to talk a little bit about the background and how it all comes together. It, it is kind of kind of a broad array of of things that we're we're tackling here today. The you know the I think the the vein. Looking back on my own just personal securitist uh, career path is is an interest on my part in trying to find ways to make it so that uh, less people as much as one can, right? Make it so that less people have to to suffer in, in the world. And that has taken me through a number of different, pretty amazing opportunities over the course of, of time. Some of which have been in, in federal service. I was a civil servant who worked at the Pentagon with somebody who was very lucky to get into that role. And we can talk about that in, in much greater detail if it's of interest, but you know, as a as a civil servant, you're you're in one of these large bureaucratic organizations that's focused on such a broad array of issues. Uh, it was it was pretty fascinating to me because uh, I was somebody who came to it with a foundational uh, career experience, having worked and lived in East and South Asia, so Japan and in India, but had also spent a little bit of time working in the defense industry. I was at Raytheon company for a number of years. And so really kind of had a, a mix of, of international affairs, but also some technical expertise coming from those experiences that really drove me towards having a policy job in national security. And that's really kind of the foundation that set me on the course to, to where I am today. The, the roles at the White House on the National Security Council, which um, oftentimes even by close relatives and even friends is sometimes confused with the National Security Agency. 
so to to make that delineation here just for for the listeners national security agency right the the eavesdroppers the ones who are uh out there who do a lot of the the code breaking the encryption the the breaking into networks and, and protecting the nation on that front very different from being on the national security council national security council going back to 1947 is the uh internal organization at the White House that advises the president directly on all national security issues. It's an organization that's really, it's really burgeoned in size and in responsibility over the course of the years. Uh, and under President Obama, I had the, the unique opportunity to take some of my earlier life experiences, having lived and worked in India and South Asia more broadly, to, to be his point person on, on South Asia. And so just, just very briefly by way of background, what that what that de- in, entails is is having responsibility for for a very wide array of international security issues, and that includes everything from trying to work government to government to establish cybersecurity dialogues, to uh, negotiations on things like hydrofluorocarbons, all the way out to working on things like nuclear security and nuclear energy, and so really have as as a bit more of a generalist, have a broad array of experiences working in both regional and functional issues, uh, everything from counterterrorism to countering weapons of mass destruction uh, to working with, with emerging technologies. And so where we find ourselves today is where uh, the running joke was always back at the Pentagon sitting in OSD policy was, you know, why can't I just move to California and start my own think tank? Um, it's very It's very much what we're doing here today. We've Got an organization that we're building that's focused primarily on trying to bridge what is, as we've perceived it, a, a divide between those technologists and innovators that are at the cutting edge of the things that we're going to talk about here today, and those policymakers who are back in Washington who could really benefit from a deeper understanding of what those technologies bring to bear. Well, that's kind of, man, that's a lot to get into. <laughs> um I mean, that's kind of the issue here, right? I mean, at least as far as I'm concerned, I mean, you, yep. you've got a lot of people that are making policies that don't understand the technology behind it. And, and you know, that's not really a too, so much of a hit against them. It's, it's, it, it's you know, this is tough. There's, there's a lot of complexities out there, particularly not even mentioning those that are trying to abuse those technologies we're talking about. So does everything you talk about essentially fit under, if there's one theme, is, are we talking security here? Yep. Or would you not define it as such? No, that's that's definitely it. And when you look at, we we've done the market analysis. We've taken a step back and thought about what it is that other organizations bring to bear, what they're really good at, what their competitive advantage is, and ours is really the security piece, and thinking about technology through that lens, whether it be deeply engaging with uh, small companies that are thinking about building a new drone technology, or dealing are working with large companies that are, that are at the cutting edge of, of, of AI techniques, thinking about what the potential security implications might be of the things that they're building or how to, from the beginning, embed a security mindset into what they're doing. And they're really, I mean, at the end, at the end of the day, there's a, there's a business case that can be made, which is obviously the most compelling for, for folks who are thinking about such things. But to your point, I think, you know, when I when I sat at the White House, I worked on some pretty intense issues, for example, on on the nuclear side of the equation. And there was oftentimes scenarios where, from what I've been able to experience over the last three, four years, as we've built this organization here in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, we, we've come across so many different technologies that 
really, honestly, no one would ever think could be brought to bear on a problem set like nuclear weapons. But there's there's some real applications. Um, one of the stories that I tell is when I was first able to move back out to, to California, I spent some time looking at what was going on out here and, and went to a, a small conference on AI-related technologies with a focus on agriculture. And what was fascinating in that discussion was there were at least two or three different applications that were being discussed in that in that setting that were from my perspective of clear import for those who work in nuclear security detection capabilities tracking capabilities machine vision uh things that you would just never think that you know they're thinking about how they could be used in picking blueberries actually could have a direct implication for national security but sitting in the white house sitting in D.C. in the bubble that exists inside the Beltway in Washington, you never really have the opportunity to get out and see those things. You don't get to go to just pop off one-off conferences in the evening on a Tuesday in San Francisco that's focused on AI. Um, so that's really the role that we're, that we're looking to fill is to, to kind of bridge that, that gap. It's like a butterfly flaps its wings in Australia, <laughs> somehow makes its way all the way to uh, the U.S. Yeah. So... Um, Look, are you going to be able to talk about this stuff? Is it like privileged information? It's like I had a buddy of mine that was in the military yeah, and pretty high up. It obviously, won't mention his name, but he calls me once out of the blue. He doesn't even say hello. He says, hey, can't tell you what I'm doing, where I am, but I need to know what you recommend in terms of video recognition software to identify suspects on the street in real time. Go. <laughs> and I was like, well, h- hello? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I got, I got to, I got to think about this. Can I call you back at least? <laughs> but I, are you able to talk about, you know, I mean, I, I imagine some of what we're talking about is privileged information. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of the, I think very critical pieces that we've seized on as an organization. And, and I'll admit, you know, right at the outset, I, I still carry my security clearances to, uh, to be able to engage in classified conversations uh, with with federal government counterparts, if and when necessary, a hundred percent of what we do, though, at Tech for GS is unclassified in the public domain. I think the the one thing that does become a bit of an issue, and, and this gets really to the core of what it is that that we are trying to do, which is um, have conversations about incredibly sensitive issues in a way that people feel comfortable actually engaging in. So you've got to be able to build that trust. And a lot of it has to happen in a venue that is under, you know, are you familiar with the Chatham House rule? I'm not. So Chatham House rule is just this operating protocol uh, kind of harks back to this organization. It's based in the UK, is a longstanding convener of policy experts where they would bring people together and folks could feel comfortable being candid, putting uh, novel ideas on the table without feeling uh, any risk of being quoted publicly or after the fact. Um, in other words, all of the conversation would happen and everyone would commit to it staying not to, not for attribution. And so we have adopted the Chatham House rule for a large number of the convenings that we do to ensure that you know folks from industry who want to come to these conversations and to contribute, but also to learn, know that they can do so and it's not going to end up in you know wired. It's not going to end up on the front page, crunch, yeah. right? Um, I would imagine that ruin your your business opportunities. That might put quickly. small constraints on our ability to engage. Yeah, um, and it's 
you know, it's something that we've going back to, you know, my almost decade in, in government service, we can, we can keep a secret. Um, so, go ahead. Well, I was, I was going to say back to that engagement, let's talk a little bit about technology for global security then. Um, how are you guys engaged then? I, I, I get once you're engaged, um, you know, some of these rules, you know, that, that you have in place, you want people to be comfortable, et cetera. But how do you engage the government call you and say, look, we've got this problem. Here's a problem statement. We want you to come in, engage and debrief us on, on, you know, I don't know. You, you tell me, I'll stop sure. there. It, I would say, I would assert that we probably spend 70% of our time uh, working with and talking to people who are in industry. And what we have found is, and it's really, it gets back to some of what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation. What we have found is historically thinking about technology and policy, policy really drove the development of advanced technologies. I mean, the list is, is immense, right? Of the technologies that you and I, all of us use on a day-to-day basis that came out of what were DOD funded grants, uh, GPS, the internet, you name it, everything that we rely on, uh, the vast majority of things that we rely on and that companies rely on for their business models today can hark back to some sort of connectivity with, with those sorts of, of R and D. Um, we look for some of the emerging technologies that are out there. We think about the potential complications or vulnerabilities that it might create. We engage with those people who are actually deeply involved in it, whether it be information security all the way out to uh, artificial intelligence related issues. And we, we learn from them as to what they're actually working on. We check assumptions. We make sure we actually know what we're talking about. And we convene those experts, those industry experts with policymakers who we know could really learn from those individuals. So it's not so much a, a government coming to us and asking for help kind of thing. It's much more of us seeing issues that may be arising, seeing problems that may already exist that we feel that we may be able to lend a hand with and making sure that we're connecting the right people. And it's usually, to be quite candid, it's, it's usually not the usual actors. It's usually not the people who show up to a lot of the convenings that you would see in a place like DC. It's not necessarily the, the policy level folks or the government relations folks, right? You don't necessarily look to the quote unquote lobbyists for these kinds of conversations. You're more, we're more interested in trying to engage with those at the operational level the guys and gals who are actually working on the stuff day to day, whether they be keeping the internet up or um, developing, you know, the cutting edge uh, tactics to try to deal with things like adversarial examples. So it's much more of a, of a uh, research and analysis effort on our part to find the problems and see what people are working on, talking to folks who are in industry and getting from them, honestly, and, and, talking to them about what they see coming and where they see potential problems arising and, and kind of taking their lead and working on problems with them. And then that filters back into the government policy space. So is that to say, and I'm going to butcher this, but is that to say that um, this is less about your, you know, technology for global security being engaged as a result of a problem that's intended to be resolved but a continual engagement that you have a relationship, a business relationship we have with, with business and government by which you're expected to 
you know, not, I mean, it, it, this isn't a reactive deal. This is all about prediction and getting out in front of the things that they haven't even thought of. Yet. Trying to. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, there's going to be those situations where there may already be an existent problem that we feel that we can lend a hand with as well. I think we know better than to be arrogant enough to come in the door and tell people that we have a solution. I think what we've identified is that putting people together in a room who usually wouldn't talk to each other, you know, the sparks fly and new ideas come out. I'll, I'll give you a perfect example. We, we hosted an event earlier this year that was focused on something that probably most of the listeners on, on the podcast have never even heard of before. It's, a, it's an enterprise called Nuclear Command Control and Communications. This is a vast set of different systems that are used to maintain and operate the United States's nuclear weapons complex. Now you would you would listen to that and think about it on its on its face what what does that what does that do with Silicon Valley? Um, there there is no operational capability for nuclear weapons without the systems that allow those weapons to be secure and useful at the moment they're needed, and that in and of itself is all about technology. And that system that exists is very old. It's a <laughs> right. I mean, this goes back decades. It's something I think that over the last 15 to 20 years has really actually begun to atrophy. And yet we see ourselves in a geopolitical environment where the tide is turning, where we thought maybe 10, 15 years ago that nuclear weapons may not be as salient as they once were. They're, they're now back very much in the fore, which means there's going to be more of them, which means that there's going to be more systems necessary for maintaining them which means that there's going to be systems that are necessary to, to show survivability and resilience of those systems so that you can actually have a credible deterrent against adversaries, which all entails the integration of advanced emerging technologies. That's where we come in. We spent a lot of time thinking about nuclear weapons over the years, but we've also spent a lot of time thinking about what sorts of potential vulnerabilities, uh, novel AI techniques with deep learning, deep neural nets, what those vulnerabilities might look like and what those two things together look like. That's not a conversation that's happening in a lot of spaces. And so we're able to pull together people who are super smart on AI or super smart on these emerging technologies and those people who are basically tasked by the president or the secretary of defense and more in particular to think about how to modernize those systems for national security purposes. We bring those people together. We did this earlier this year at Stanford. And there are people who were in the room who spoke about particular technical solutions. And those folks from government who were there basically were quite quizzical. They, they had not heard that before. They hadn't thought about it through that lens. And so it, it sparks new ways of potentially thinking about how to solve some of these problems. It sure seems like to me that, um, and this is outside in view, I'm sure I'd be amazed, but that we're awfully reactive. Yeah. And I, you know, I thought you maybe said this earlier that, uh, you know, the DOD had, had driven policies and technology to push innovation in the past. I don't, is that true for today? It seems like, you know, kind of, you're talking about, um, antiquated systems today. It seems like the industry is, is kind of 
pushing governments and, and it feels like the governments are, are getting behind and always playing catch up. And even when you're talking about cybersecurity, I was reading a book the other day, and again, I'm going to forget, but they talked about when we first got really responsive in cybersecurity, and I think it was under Obama's watch. Uh, well, there was another one, I guess, early in the late 90s that was like Moonlight something. I don't know. Maybe you would know whatever breach that was. Uh, anyway, it seems like we're behind. It seems like we're always reactive. I don't know what your response is to that, but am I right? Yeah, or we can. I- we can talk a little bit more in depth on the on the cyber side of things. It's it's definitely a cat and mouse game on on many levels. And when it comes to you know kind of who is leading on the on the technology front, who's leading how the policy is being developed, it has. I, I would assert that it has more definitely changed over the course of of decades here in the United States. I think it's important to note with that in mind that that's not necessarily applicable to other nation states. When you consider China, for example, and and not to just talk about nukes, right? But China's systems are not nearly as, um, they, they don't deal with the same sort of legacy problems that the US might have to when it comes to our massive nuclear uh, enterprise. And that's really applicable across the spectrum of technology issues that like DOD has to deal with, right? They've got massive bureaucracies that are focused on execution of the mission and and not necessarily focused on trying to be uh, integrating cutting edge technologies. Whereas the Chinese, for example, they have, they have much more flexibility in their system because they don't have to deal with those legacy problems. Um, I and my organization have seen the R&D trends over the course of the years really point to the fact that private industry is the one that's coming up with the most innovative uh, technical capabilities that are out there. And government, the US government has immense capabilities. It has immense resources and it most definitely is not falling behind in some regards, but in others, it is woefully behind. And I think, you know, just considering the, the way that the government functions is, is, it's not just that fact that's of concern or of issue. It's just the fact that they are not as capable of adaption, adoption of new things. They can't adapt as quickly. They don't have the same flexibility as, as a Google might. I think uh, a recent, a podcast that my organization did with a uh, a former vice president for uh, security and privacy engineering at Google. We talked a little bit about Google's ability to protect itself. Um, They've got nation state level attacks. They've got hackers. They've got all different kinds of attacks coming at them all day long, every day on a scale. that's just (laughs) insane. But they're able, for the most part, I mean, there was the outage here this past weekend, right? Uh, They still have their own issues, too. But they have to constantly parry and adapt and change their systems. DOD understands that, too, but they're just not as agile as an organization. And that has to change if they're going to be able to keep up with the rapid. I think the the rapid pace of change and the ability to integrate those these novel technologies is really difficult. And it's it's something that's going to demand really at, at the core of it, not just leadership and uh, at the end of the day, direction from Congress in order to ameliorate some of those issues, but 
there's a cultural shift that's going to need to be embraced as well. So you talked about when we started, by the way, that was the uh, Moonlight Maze. That's what I was talking about. The one, one of the first sophisticated cyber attacks. Anyway, um, you can, if you're listening, you can look it up. <laughs> the, um, you talk about address when we started this addressing public suffrage yeah. today uh, around security. What, what are the, the, if you had to narrow down the top three priorities, I got to believe, you know, my first one would, I would think would be cybersecurity. Uh, I mean, without question, there'd be a line of distinction between that and like two and three, but I may be completely off. There may be uh, threats that I don't even think about that, you know, you deal with every day, but what would you be your top three of security threats today? You know, it's, it's, that's a great question. One of the things that we, we, we joke about all the time with, with colleagues is there's just such a proliferation of threats that it's almost impossible to help people focus on the ones that are most, that are the most critical. I would, you know, the more that, that one thinks about it, at least from, from our perspective, I think cyber is really incredibly pervasive because it touches everything. And that's really got to be near the top of, of anybody's list. Um, I think the things that rise to the level of, of I mean, top three is probably going to have to also include things on the bioweapon side, to be honest. I think that is a space um, that is really not well yet understood in terms of how those technologies are going to proliferate and what that really means in terms of defending against how those technologies might be used by a non-state actor. For example, if a Daesh gets its hands on something of those, uh, of that power, uh, I think that could be um, incredibly damaging. And it's not something that we are prepared for in terms of response capabilities or, or dealing with from a, a health and human services perspective. Um, to be honest, I, I, I hate to say it because it's become so uh, politicized and it's almost cliche. Personally, I think nuclear weapons are very high at the top of that list, but um, the, the climate crisis, the, I think the, the, the piece of this that is often not talked about um, is something that we're already seeing the results of. If you think about what's happening in Central America, for example, and the mass migration that is, that is having to occur because of uh, the inability for growing crops, the changing nature of the climate is going to have significant national security implications for the global community. And it's, it's something that we're seeing happening already. So, you know, for, for my intents and purposes, I'd say that those three are the ones that probably are the most concerning and that really don't get the attention that's, that's necessary for us to be able to really be thinking them through on the, on the nuclear weapons front. It's, it's much more of a low probability, very high risk set of issues. Um, I, I will say this though. So as someone who has spent a lot of his adult life thinking about national security issues and, uh, dealing with some of the hard, hardest problems in that in that regard counterterrorism and what have you i i never i never honestly thought that there would be a time in my life that i would be concerned since i was a kid right i mean doing the duck and cover thing i lived next to a <laughs> i lived next to an air force base where they tested icbms when i was a kid it was just kind of you knew that threat was out there but that that receded 
And as I've grown older, I never thought there would be a day where there could be a nuclear war. And yet, I think that's changed. I think that's conceivable uh, in, in this day and age. And so I'll give you those top three, but I'll throw the, the nuclear threat in there as a very high, high risk as well. But doesn't all right. So I'm going to get back to the top three. I actually envisioned you'd have nuclear weapons outside yeah. of the top three, but and I get you on the low probability, high risk. And yeah, I, I grew up the same time you did, where you know that was you know we were still up against yep. Russia, <laughs> you know, and and you know it was, it was a duck and cover. You know they still had bomb yep. shelters. First school I went, the grade <laughs> school I went to had one. Uh, but the uh, dirty weapons don't don't. I mean, don't enter in that equation and and and, and uh, make that. So that the, in the, the top risk three? of loss of radiological material that could be turned into a weapon of that sort is there. I would I would argue that the economic and political impact of a weapon of that sort is not going to be on the on the same order as say a synthetic bioweapon could be. Um, it, it's it's something that would have reverberations. It would have deleterious effects on the economy, et cetera. There would be political ramifications, but it would not be of the same scale in kind of our, our analysis. I think when it comes to, to cyber a, as well, I think the, the dirty bomb threat is out there, but it's, again, it's of a, I think it, it's of a lower set of risks. When you think about what's, I don't know how familiar you are with, uh, some of the more recent um, industrial control system style attacks that we've seen kind of percolating through various countries. There's been some attacks on on Saudi systems, for example, Saudi Aramco. Um, is, I think it's called Dragos, the company calls it Zenotime. These, these capabilities are inherently and purposefully meant to inflict bodily harm in systems that are so pervasive around the world in control systems and the vulnerabilities are so per pervasive as well that that kind of thing really is much to me personally it, it's much less well understood and i think it's much more of a threat than say uh, a radiological weapon which is a hard to build because it's hard to get your hands on those materials and at the outset there's a lot of people out there who are working real hard every day to make sure that those materials don't fall into the wrong hands and they've got a good, pretty good uh, understanding of where those materials sit and how well protected they are. Uh, I think folks in that space have done an amazing job in recent years at locking down uh, even other types of radiological materials that previously hadn't really been uh, considered, things like cesium. Um, so that's, I think, a little bit of a better understood threat and a better contained threat. And that's, I guess, why I wouldn't necessarily put it up the same level of, of priority. You got an interesting job, man. At least, I mean, it's it's kind of scary, I have to say. <laughs> but it's pretty damn yeah, I often, pretty damn interesting. I often get called the wet blanket. Uh, <laughs> hey, a um, couple things to and what I did want to do is 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 a quick lightning round. This is more personal questions to you. Sure. That uh, don't worry, I'll go easy. But the 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 listener base loves it. First thing is, I know you do a podcast of your own, right? We should we should advertise that here. Yeah, we just kicked it off. We, we've got our first podcast series. We're calling it The Fourth Leg, which is a bit of a uh, almost cheesy <laughs> moniker stolen from the nuclear domain. 
which typically when talking about nuclear weapons, there's the triad, right? The, and so the, the NC3 component of that, the nuclear command control and communications component is the fourth leg. That's our first podcast series. We're going to have a couple more coming out. We're going to have a pretty basic, straightforward conversation that we'll be instigating that is just about tech and security more broadly. But then we'll also have a series that we're kicking off on AI and international security, and then one on, on internet security more, more specifically as well. So we'll have a number of, of podcasts that people should check out. It's on our, uh, our website, uh, techforgs.org, and uh, it's on SoundCloud, iTunes, all the rest of it. You can find it. We're just getting started, so watch for, watch for more coming down the line. Well, you can bet I'm going to sign up, and uh, we will put it in the show notes. Send so it, that's very clear. I'll go through a few quick hits here. Um, so is, are you an Obama tight then? <laughs> um, you, you know, he, he's got a lot of people that worked for him. Uh, <laughs> so did you ever, did, did you get in a relationship or anything? You, you talked to him I, directly? I, w- I could put it this way. You know, when, when I went back, you, you, uh, having served on, on the national security council staff, you have the opportunity to go back with your family, uh, when you depart to take a photo with the president. And we had already moved to California and we went back to have the photo. And we had just had our first daughter and we walk into the oval to, uh, to take the photo with, with president Obama. And of course he, first thing he says is to kind of jive me a little bit. He kind of looks at me and goes, Oh, so you decided to shave. Um, <laughs> well, I, I had had, you were- I, yeah, I had taken that, that, that leap of faith that people would still trust me in federal service when I grew a beard um at, at the national security council it was it was one of those things that you did not see very often and uh, obviously he had never said anything about it before but um it was definitely something that clearly stuck in his in his memory of, of so he you had never have you had you talked before then oh quite a bit quite a bit particularly oh, yeah, particularly when when working on on the india portfolio would have uh, routine op- opportunities to to brief him when doing senior level uh heads of state engagements but then also when working on the afghanistan account we would we would engage with the president fairly routinely that's pretty funny and, and his first comment was uh you know you you found your razor yeah he, you know <laughs> he decided to shave there huh reiner <laughs> that's pretty good so who else is in your friendship group give us some name drops here man a friendship group um <laughs> You know, we've we've got a pretty interesting group. It's there's there's an increasingly large group of expats that are based out here who are DC policy types who that we're in pretty tight with. I think you know, um, it, I mentioned Mike McNerney earlier. He's he's our board chair and one of the co-founders of the organization. Um, we've got some pretty amazing people on our board. Uh, Dan Birkenstock, who was one of the, the founders of Skybox. Um, He's on our board, TJ Rylander, who's at the, the Siemens Venture Arm, uh, Next 47. He's someone who spent, I think, upwards of a decade with NQTEL. Um, and he's just an absolutely great guy with incisive insight into how things are working in Silicon Valley. We've got, you know, beyond that, we've got an extensive network that goes from, from everybody who, like Raj Shah, who's an, an entrepreneur and who used to, to run the Defense Innovation Unit based down there. It's the DOD uh, office that they set up out in Silicon Valley. Raj was running that for a little while. Uh, he's back. He's got a new startup that he just kicked off that's focused on cyber insurance. It's pretty amazing. People should check it out. called Arceo.ai. Uh, Raj is great people. But then we've got just a, a, a slew of others who are 
who are in the mix, like you know Nathaniel Weischer, who's the head of cybersecurity at Facebook, um, guys like Chris Finan, uh, who was running a company called Mandiant. Um, Mandiant, you may want to check me in the recording there. I don't think it's Mandiant. It might be. I might get the name wrong on that one. My apologies. Um, and then up to people like Bill Coleman, who was the CEO of Veritas, um, and and others. I mean, we really have been pretty pretty blessed to have uh, advisors in in all of these domains. Uh, people like Marty Hellman, who won the Turing Award for his role in inventing public key cryptography. Um, folks like Terry Winograd, has, he was one of the originals when it comes to artificial intelligence dating back to the 50s, uh, has been someone that we've turned to for consistent advice. So we've got a pretty broad uh, array of folks uh, at that level. And then you've got the, the folks who are you know more up and coming, if you will, but who are just amazing people like Ian Goodfellow, uh, who was at IBM, I believe, has recently popped smoke and, and gone over to Apple, if I'm not mistaken. But Ian, uh, the folks at you know OpenAI, we've really benefited from being able to engage um, with folks across a wealth of companies on the in internet security front, whether it be uh, people like Roland Dobbins at Arbor NetScout or Nimrod Levy at AT&T. Um, we really, we benefit from a, a pretty amazing network of people who've been very helpful in helping us think through really hard problems. Very good, very good. Hey, I got one more question and three quick hits, and then I'll leave you alone. Um, go from religious studies and history is your BA, then you go to international relations, and you find yourself in the tech. How did that happen? Just out of necessity? So it's a it's a great question, and it's something that I actually um, I almost I, I look back at with a, as a point of pride. So I, I graduated from undergrad and moved to Japan and thought I was going to go back and get my PhD in medieval Japanese esoteric Buddhism. And so needless to say, that did not happen. Um, spent a number of years li living in Japan, uh, figured out very quickly that I did not want to be going back and getting my PhD in medieval Japanese religion. Um, still something that is, is very much a part of my life and fascinating, but it wasn't the tra you know trajectory I wanted to go on. I was then, uh, I found myself in India studying Hindi when 9-11 happened and watched the towers fall on the BBC, sitting in a, in a room full of students and you know expats. And there were a number of students who were there who were actually from New York and could not communicate with people back home. Uh, it was it was a jarring experience, but then within a very short amount of time was in New Delhi and a Pakistan-based terrorist outfit called Lashkari Taiba attacked the Indian parliament while I was there and uh, Americans were under risk of abduction. And there was this series of events that, and I had mentioned this at the outset of the conversation, this thread that has really kind of uh, found its way through everything that I've always done. Looking back to my undergrad studies, what I had really been seized with was why is it that nation states behave in the way that they do? Why is it that people behave in the way that they do? What is it that actually drives the human ability to kill on a massive scale? 
how is that possible? And these were questions that were, you know, deeply of curiosity to me. And I'm a, an incessantly curious person to, to begin with. And that pushed me in directions uh, over the course of the following years where I knew that I you know, had a growing suspicion that I wanted to get involved in international affairs, but with a focus on security and a focus on why nation states and people behave in this way. And that's really what led me towards a graduate degree at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, studying under Elliot Cohen, who is just an amazing uh, scholar and mentor, someone who uh, had a, an immensely formative impact on my understanding of why people behave the way they do, why nation states behave the way they do, and how. Dude, it's fascinating. Oh, yeah, sorry. no, no, he, he's just a fascinating guy and really impacted the way that I think about the world. And um, from there, found found myself at the Pentagon and uh, really found my, my, my dream job in working on the National Security Council staff, working on South Asia issues and, and doing really hard, really complex problem solving at, at that level, at the basically the highest levels of our government. So yeah, wow, yeah. man, that's that's quite a, that's quite a trip. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. I mean, hence the reason I read. I just got to reading Prisoners of Geography. This kind of stuff is is really fascinating. I got to ask you three quick so, ones. All right. Best place you've ever traveled. South of France. And, and you got to give me just I, now. I, I want a little bit. So give me a quick uh, uh, snippet. There of is why. nothing more romantic and fantastical to me than the south of France. The beaches, the the wine country, the mountains, the open spaces, the ancient culture, the the stone homes, the food. It's just it's an it's an ideal space to me, and it's. I mean. Everything about that is is absolutely enticing to me. The peacefulness, the music, the the people's attitudes about life. It's just an incredibly inviting place. Well, I was going to ask you this question, but I think it's going to be rhetorical now. Uh, best food, I guess, south of France. Uh, no, well, I mean, I am a, I am a, my my wife will, you know, definitely support this one. I am someone, I'm, I'm a sauce guy, so French French food is is definitely high on the list for me. I would have to argue, though, that that Asian food, South Asian food, maybe even Southeast Asian food, so Thai, Cambodian, those are probably the, the, at the top of my list. Nice. Yeah. If you could interview any leader, given you've been around, you've been, you know, hobnobbing with some of the uh, the highest in office. You could, you, if I gave you twenty minutes, said you can interview anybody you want across history, even, who would it be? That's just mean. Um, <laughs> of course it um, is across history that is a tough one i mean all right well let, let's make it today then because you're you know president you've you've done a lot you know you've been with hobnob with obama etc who would you interview today if you could do it tomorrow i could get you an interview with him yeah it, it, that, it, it's a pretty easy one to answer and i i hesitate to say it though because i i know that the interview probably wouldn't go well but I would very much be interested in, and this would definitely be a tough conversation, but Xi Jinping is it, oh, really, nice. if it could be a candid conversation where he doesn't just give political answers, which is impossible to imagine. That's impossible. It would really be, I mean, if you think about China and its history and you think about just the characters that are used to write the word China, it's literally the center of the universe. Its conception of itself is the 
the, the central nation, right? And this is how they've seen themselves for, for thousands of years. And to, to see it through the lens of what Xi Jinping thinks of and what his agenda is to get him to be candid and frank about where he wants China to be and how he's going to get there would be an absolutely mind-blowing conversation. That's that's great. Look, you're going to do really good with your podcast, by the way. I've got a I've got a bonus bonus sure. question, and we'll end on this. And if you can't answer it, we'll just cut it out. But here's the question: What is something that's true in all of your studies? You know, you're living across the the world, you know, working security issues, dealing with governments. What's something that's true that inherently most of the world would disagree with you on? Um, but you know it to be true, and we just don't get it. It's a tough question. That bureaucrats are a good thing. <laughs> that bureaucrats is a, are a so good thing. I, uh, I never could have imagined saying this when I was younger, but I very much became a bureaucrat. Yeah. Wow. And it, well, how? What's What's the right way? I learned that you could not succeed in federal service unless you embraced the bureaucracy, unless you loved it to the point where you could use it to your advantage. You will not survive in the U.S. federal government if you don't let it just be what it is. It can be absolutely suffocating, emasculating, frustrating to get anything done within U.S. federal service, but there's, there's a reason for that. There's a reason for those frustrations and there's an advantage to it. It creates outcomes if done right, if the process is respected and used to the fullest of its potential, I think it can result in pretty amazing things. Sitting at the National Security Council and seeing what a deeply engaged and deeply well-informed president is capable of doing with a senior staff that has basically all the information resources at its fingertips necessary at all times with the with the ability to reach down and touch whatever you need to touch to get something done um, and engaging with foreign foreign countries engaging with elements of the u.s domestic apparatus it is an unsurpassed seat in which you can sit and actually accomplish things that are of incredible importance to the really to the well-being of the United States, but also I think people just more broadly around the world. So bureaucrats are the only ones who can do that. Um, and it's pretty hard if you you just flit into it and think you're just going to all of a sudden change the world, the world and, and do amazing things. And get, no, uh-uh. <laughs> you, you can sit down and, and take a deep breath and, and wait a little while. But if you get the time necessary, you can actually you can actually maybe bend history a little bit. And it's pretty amazing when you have the chance to do that. Wow. Um Man, I've learned a lot from you today. And I got to tell you, that was a great answer. You stifled me <laughs> on that a little bit. You know, I travel to San Francisco a lot. And I can tell you, I'm going to look you up and I'm going to, you know, I know you're a busy dude and you probably won't be able to do it. But if I can have a beer and we can dissect that one, that'll be great. It. Yeah, definitely hit me up. I'll make the time for it. Your podcast is going to be fantastic. We will make sure that it's in the show notes so people can, uh, uh, can subscribe you. to it. I will be your first subscriber. I'm going to go out there. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure I'm not your first, but I'm going to get out there and, and subscribe is what I'll promise you on that. And again, uh, I don't know. I, do I, is it Phil or Philip? I'm actually agnostic. I go, I go with either. All right. Well, Philip, 
Uh, this has been fascinating. Again, thank you so much for being here. The, 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 the listeners are going to love it. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. My pleasure and ha- happy to continue the conversation. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you. And uh, until next time, everybody, as always, let us know how we're doing. And uh, we'll make sure that we bring the right folks on like Philip himself. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, over and out.